Just a quick note as we get started, this week's episode may not be up to our usual sound quality standards. There's a lot of work happening in our house today, and my home studio seems to be right next to an air compressor, a sawzall, and a hammer. Please excuse any background noise that sneaks into this week's recording. Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 212, The Puritan War on Christmas. Hi, I'm Jake. This week I'll be talking about Christmas in Boston, or actually, the lack thereof. Anyone who knows me knows that I'm not big on celebrating Christmas, so I feel a special affinity with the Puritans this time of year. Boston's founders are remembered as a deeply religious society, so you might assume that Christmas in Puritan Boston would have been a big deal. You'd be wrong, though. Celebrating Christmas was against the law for decades, and it was against cultural norms for a century or more. But why? What was it about how Christmas was celebrated at the time that made the Puritans want to stamp it out? But before we talk about the Puritan War on Christmas, I just want to thank Christopher L., our latest supporter on Patreon. By sponsoring the show, Christopher and the loyal listeners like him sign up to contribute $2, $5, or even $10 a month to help us cover the cost of making Hub History. We're pretty good about podcasting on a budget, but we still have expenses like web hosting and security, podcast media hosting, storage and backup, audio processing tools, and research databases. Thanks to Christopher and everyone like him, we can focus on research and writing while the finances take care of themselves. If you're not sponsoring the show yet and you'd like to start, just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory or visit hubhistory.com and click on the support us link. And thanks again to all our new and returning sponsors. I also want to mention that I made a list of 63 books about Boston history that we discussed on the show as part of the Boston Book Club, and I posted it on bookshop.org. If you're looking for something to read, or if you're looking for a gift for the Boston history nerd on your list... Purchasing through our affiliate links will help support the podcast and your local bookstore. Just go to hubhistory.com and click on the bookshop link to get started. And now it's time for this week's main topic. I'm going to open this week with my favorite Puritan, Samuel Sewell. Now hold on a second, you might say. Didn't you tell us back in episode 146 about the 1690 siege of Quebec that Sir William Phipps was your favorite Puritan? Not so fast. First of all, I did not say that he was my favorite Puritan. I said I thought he was a contender for the most interesting man in the world. And second of all, he wasn't a real Puritan. I mean, sure, Cotton Mather did baptize him into the church in March of 1690, but that was more about political expediency than spiritual conviction, allowing him to take command of the Massachusetts Bay Colony's military. Samuel Sewell, on the other hand, was a Puritan's Puritan. He was a first-generation Bostonian having immigrated from England in 1662. He attended Harvard and later worked as the college's second librarian. Although he met his liberal side in episode 191, about the pamphlet The Selling of Joseph, where he argued from scripture that African slavery shouldn't be considered legal or godly, he was generally known as a religious conservative, arguing against changing customs like the legalization of fancy wigs. He's most widely remembered for his role as a judge in the Salem Witch Trials a position to which he was appointed by the interesting Sir William Phipps, and then for his public apology for that same role. 
in the diary that he kept for over a half century, from 1673 to 1729, he recorded how he stood up in church on a fast day and announced that he was sensible of the guilt contracted through the court held at Salem, and that he desired to take the blame and shame of it, asking the pardon of men, and asking the congregation to pray with him that God would also forgive him. The diary entry about that apology was written in January 1697, and it came just a few pages after the entry for Christmas Day, December 25, 1696. On that day, Sewell wrote, he buried his daughter Sarah in the family tomb. she just turned two years old. He stood in the tomb and reflected on the coffins of his parents, his in-laws, and six of his own children all stacked close together. He ordered Sarah's coffin, the seventh, to be placed across the feet of his parents. Then he started walking home. Even in the midst of the grief of such a terrible day, Sewell couldn't restrain himself from noting, Many went to church this day. Met them coming home from church as I went to the tomb. Now you might say to yourself, Puritans coming home from church? That's the most natural thing in the world. Well, sure, except for one thing. December 25, 1696 was a Tuesday. When he wasn't mourning a dead child, Samuel Sewell spent decades noting how people in Boston observed, or more properly in his view, didn't observe, December 25th. It was very important to Samuel Sewell that commerce continued as usual on these days, that people didn't avoid their work, and that there were no public celebrations. In 1694, he wrote, Tuesday, December 25th. Shops are open, men at work. Carts of pork, hay, coal, and wood come to town as on other days. Mr. McCarty's shop is open. In 1697, he reported, Snowy day. Shops are open and carts and sleds come to town with wood as formerly, save what abatement may be allowed on account of the weather. His family had a close call that year when, despite his instruction not to participate in Christmas keeping, one of his children nearly gave in to peer pressure and attended church services on Christmas. I took occasion to dehort mine from Christmas keeping and charged them to forbear. Joseph tells me that though most of the boys went to the church, yet he went not. His entries for 1704 and 1705 are nearly identical, writing in 1704, December 25th, Monday, a storm of snow, yet many sleds come to town with wood, hoops, coal, etc., as is usual. And in 1705, Tuesday, December 25th, very cold day, but serene morning, sleds, sleighs, and horses pass as usual and shops open. There are similar entries in 1706, 1713, 1717. Even in the midst of another family tragedy, he found the time to write a note about how business didn't stop for Christmas in Boston. After his five-month-old granddaughter died in 1711, he went to Brookline for the day, writing, Comforted my son and daughter what I could, prayed with them and took leave. Got home a little after sunset. We had much ado to get along for the multitude of sleds coming to town with wood and returning. It was very important to him that he got caught in market traffic on the way back to Boston, despite the fact that it was December 25th. Without the family tragedy, he took similar satisfaction in the traffic he encountered in 1716. Tuesday, December 25th. Shops are open and sleds come to town as at other times. 
I went to Cambridge and found the ferryboat crowded much with passengers coming to town, and so going back on my return. In fact, so many of Sewell's Christmas Day diary entries are like that, it's more interesting to take note of the exceptions. Like in 1703, when he noted disapprovingly that the Christmas keepers had a very pleasant day. Or in 1714, when Christmas fell on a Saturday and Samuel Sewell decided to go to church that Sunday, December 26th. He attended the New North Church in the North End. Lord's Day, December 26th. Mr. Bromfield and I go and keep the Sabbath with Mr. John Webb and sit down with that church at the Lord's table. I did it to hold communion with that church, and, so far as in me lay, to put respect upon that affronted, despised Lord's Day. For the Church of England had the Lord's Supper yesterday, the last day of the week, but will not have it today, the day that the Lord is made. And General Nicholson, who kept Saturday, was this Lord's Day rummaging and chittering with wheelbarrows, etc., to get aboard at the Long Wharf and firing guns at setting sail. I thank God I heard not, saw not anything of it, but was quiet at the New North. Not forbearing labor and going to meeting on the Sabbath was bad enough, but Samuel Sewell's discomfort with and disapproval of keeping Christmas went far deeper than that. As we'll see, the Puritans had religious reasons why they didn't celebrate Christmas that far predated their colonization of the Massachusetts Bay. However, as UMass Amherst professor and author of The Battle for Christmas, Stephen Nissenbaum wrote in a 1996 article for the American Antiquarian Society, the Puritans had another reason for suppressing Christmas. The holiday they suppressed was not what we probably mean when we think of a traditional Christmas. It involved behavior that most of us would find offensive and even shocking today. Rowdy public displays of excessive eating and drinking, the mockery of established authority, aggressive begging, often combined with the threat of doing harm, and even the boisterous invasion of wealthy homes. In a 1935 essay in the New England Quarterly titled Christmas the Upstart, Ivor Spencer uncovered the early history of Christmas in New England, among both those who wished to celebrate and those who despised the very idea. He was writing just a few years after Boston's tercentennial, at a time when both religiosity and nostalgia for what were mistakenly thought of as simpler times were at their peak. I think he set out to deliberately scandalize his readers when he accurately noted that the festivities were not the sort we know today. Far from being the newborn son of man, the infant to whom the three kings brought their gifts, Christ served rather as the lord of misrule, patron of riotous celebration. It was in his name that the wassail bowl passed and toasts were given, and before the prolonged feasting was over, the jails were usually filled with drunken roisterers. It's fairly obvious why a society that saw a pathway to heaven through hard work scriptural study, and temperate denial of earthly pleasures would be threatened by a season of misrule, wassailing, and mummery. However, they were fighting against the tide in some ways. By the early 17th century, when first the Plymouth Pilgrims and then the Boston Puritans emigrated from those shores, Christmas traditions had been firmly rooted in England for centuries. Nissenbaum's article explains, It may seem odd that Christmas was ever celebrated in such a fashion. But there was a good reason. December was the major punctuation mark in the rhythmic cycle of work in northern agricultural societies, a time when there was a minimum of work to be performed. The deep freeze of midwinter had not yet set in. The work of gathering the harvest and preparing it for winter was done, and there was plenty of newly fermented beer or wine, as well as meat from freshly slaughtered animals, 
meat that had to be consumed before it spoiled. St. Nicholas, for example, is associated with the Christmas season chiefly because his name day, December 6th, coincided in many European countries with the end of the harvest and slaughter season. In a society that only recently emerged from feudalism, and where most people lived a strictly subsistence lifestyle, the temptation to act out during a season of relative ease and plenty would be hard to resist. Especially when, as it was before the rise of Puritanism, the dominant culture encouraged such diversions. Nissenbaum's description of the seasonal celebration continues, Christmas was a season of misrule a time when ordinary behavioral restraints could be violated with impunity. It was part of what one historian has called the world of carnival. The term carnival is rooted in the Latin carne and val, farewell to flesh. And flesh refers here not only to meat, but also to sex, to activities both carnivorous and carnal. Christmas misrule meant that not only hunger, but also anger and lust could be expressed in public. Often people blacken their faces or disguise themselves as animals or cross-dressed, thus operating under a protective cloak of anonymity. The late 19th century historian John Ashton reports one episode from Lincolnshire in 1637, in which the man selected by a crowd of revelers as Lord of Misrule was publicly given a wife, in a ceremony led by a man dressed as a minister. He read the entire marriage service in the Book of Common Prayer. Thereupon, as Ashton noted in proper Victorian language, the affair was carried to its utmost extent. By the time the Arbella fleet sailed for Boston, Puritanism had been in ascendancy in England for a half-century, and public celebration of Christmas and other saints' days was in decline. Back in England, Puritans were never more than a plurality or a very slim majority of the population. But among the Puritan dissenters who packed up and moved to Boston in 1630, they were the near-unanimous majority. Christmas was never able to establish a beachhead in Massachusetts, much like it had been rejected by the Puritan separatist neighbors in Plymouth. The so-called Pilgrims, who established their colony about a decade before Massachusetts Bay, set the tone for Christmas early. Thomas Prince's New England Chronology describes how December 25, 1620 found the Pilgrims still living on board the Mayflower. They spent the day trying to build a communal shelter, which would be the first building in Plymouth. December 25th, Monday. They go ashore again, felling timber, sawing, riving, carrying, begin to erect the first house, about 20 foot square, for their common use to receive them and their goods. Leaving about 20 to keep a court of guard, the rest return aboard at evening. No feasting, no public drinking, no misrule or merrymaking. Just one year later, however, the first challenge appeared after the original colonists were joined by a new company of mostly young, unmarried men who arrived on the ship Fortune. In his History of Plymouth Plantation, Governor William Bradford described December 25, 1621. On the day called Christmas Day, the governor called them out to work as was usual, but the most of this new company excused themselves and said it went against their conscience to work on that day. So the governor told them that if they made it a matter of conscience, he would spare them till they were better informed. So he led away the rest and left them. But when they came home at noon from their work, he found them in the streets at play, openly, some pitching the bar and some at stool ball and such like sports. So he went to them and took away their implements and told them that it was against his conscience that they should play in others' work. 
If they made keeping it a matter of devotion, let them keep their houses. But there should be no gaming or reveling in the streets. Since which time nothing has been attempted that way, at least openly. Setting a pattern that would hold to a greater or lesser degree across New England for almost 200 years, Bradford highlighted his willingness to overlook the group's forbearance from labor, itself seen as a sin, if they wanted to spend the day in quiet prayer and reflection. It was only public displays of festivity that had to be eliminated. When John Winthrop and his Arbella fleet arrived in the city upon a hill a decade later, the New England chronology notes that their first Christmas in the New World fell on a Saturday. But it was considered such an insignificant date that without notable weather or the arrival of a ship in Boston Harbor, nothing was recorded for the day. December 24th. Till this time, there was, for the most part, fair open weather, with gentle frosts in the night. But this day, the wind comes northwest very sharp and some snow, but so cold that some of their fingers froze and in danger to be lost. It then skips to December 26th, Lord's Day. The rivers are froze up, and they of Charlestown could not come to the sermon at Boston until the afternoon at high water. In the early years of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, the Court of Assistance was not shy about introducing laws that strictly regulated personal behavior. In 1631, they ordered that anyone who owned cards, dice, or gaming tables should make away with them before the next meeting of the court. The following year, they implemented a one-pence fine on anyone taking tobacco in public. Over the coming decades, they banned Quakers and Baptists from worshipping, men from wearing wigs and women from curling their hair, and they implemented harsh corporal punishments for extramarital sex. However, there was already such a strong cultural taboo against the public celebration of Christmas that no law regarding the holiday was passed for almost 30 years. That all changed with the Court of General Election held in Boston on May 11, 1659. John Endicott was presiding as governor, and there were many famous names from early Boston attending as members of the Court of Assistants or Deputies. Simon Bradstreet, Daniel Gookin, Edward Rawson, Roger Clapp, Thomas Savage, and more. During that legislative session, the court tackled many other topics. What to do with individuals or families that couldn't support themselves. Forcing people who lost a civil judgment to pay up quickly. Preserving proper discipline in the militia. Again banning gambling and appointing an official in each port town to measure salt imports. The session also banished six suspected Quakers from the province on pain of death, and it authorized the county treasurer in Salem to sell a couple into indentured servitude in Barbados for not paying a civil judgment against them as Quaker sympathizers. With Governor Endicott's blessing, the court also debated and passed a law prohibiting Christmas-keeping. It said... For preventing disorders arriving in several places within this jurisdiction, by reason of some still observing such festivals as were superstitiously kept in other countries, to the great dishonor of God and offense of others, it is therefore ordered by this court and the authority thereof, that whosoever shall be found observing any such day as Christmas or the like, either by forbearing of labor, feasting, or any other way, upon any such accounts as aforesaid, Every such person so offending shall pay for every such offense five shillings as a fine to the county. But if the cultural mores against celebrating the nativity had been successful for nearly a century, first in Old England and now in New, why was legislation necessary at all? In his article on Christmas in early New England, Stephen Nissenbaum points out, 
Laws are not made, of course, unless there are people who are engaging in the forbidden activity. And the Massachusetts Bay Law of 1659, like Governor Bradford's earlier report, suggests that there were indeed people in Massachusetts who were observing Christmas in the late 1650s. The law was clear on this point. It was designed for preventing disorders. The wording of the law also implied that the authorities were concerned chiefly, as Governor Bradford had been, not with private devotion, but with what the law termed disorders. That point was reinforced by a provision in the law that threatened to impose a second five-shilling fine for gambling, with cards or dice, a practice the court noted that was frequent in many places at such times as Christmas. A generation after Boston was founded, the British crown would reassert its authority in the city, bringing the Church of England an official recognition of the Christmas holiday with it. However, that was still decades in the future when the ban went into place, so Anglicans were not the target of the law. Instead, Nissenbaum points to groups who lived on the colony's fringes, both physically distant from the governmental authority in Boston and culturally independent from the Puritan church that tied the province together. Who were the people that practiced Christmas misrule in 17th century New England? Not surprisingly, the evidence suggests that they are mostly on the margins of official New England culture, or altogether outside it. It was fishermen and mariners who had the reputation of being the most incorrigible sinners in New England, and the region's least reformed inhabitants. Maritime communities such as Nantucket, the Isles of Shoals, and especially the town of Marblehead were notorious for irreligion, heavy drinking, and loose sexual practices. They were also repositories of enduring English folk practices places that ignored or resisted Orthodox New England culture. It is no coincidence that Marblehead was also a site of ongoing Christmas-keeping. Still, Nissenbaum explains, the point of the law was to prevent public disorders, so gatherings at home weren't really affected. Quote, This was not the secret police going after everybody. It's clear from the wording of the ban that the Puritans weren't really concerned with celebrating the holiday in a quiet way privately. It was for preventing disorders. When it comes to disorders, Nissenbaum also notes that an Anglican minister singled out two particularly dangerous seasonal practices. The first was mumming. The second, strange to modern readers, was the singing of Christmas carols. Mumming usually involved a changing of clothes between men and women, who, when dressed in each other's habits, go from one neighbor's house to another and make merry with them in disguise. Bourne proposed that this custom, which is still so common among us at this season of the year, be laid aside, as it is the occasion for much uncleanness and debauchery. As for singing Christmas carols, that practice was a disgrace, since it was generally done in the midst of rioting and chambering and wantonness. Chambering was a common euphemism for fornication. Nissenbaum continues, The Puritans understood another thing, too. Much of the seasonal excess that took place at Christmas was not merely chaotic disorder, but behavior that took a profoundly ritualized form. Most fundamentally, Christmas was an occasion when the social hierarchy itself was symbolically turned upside down, in a gesture that inverted designated roles of gender, age, and class. During the Christmas season, those near the bottom of society acted high and mighty. Men might dress like women, and women might dress and act like men. Young people might imitate and mock their elders. For example, a boy might be chosen bishop and take on for a brief time some of a real bishop's authority. 
A peasant or an apprentice might become Lord of Misrule and mimic the authority of a real gentleman. So, as we'll see in a few minutes, Puritan Massachusetts had serious doctrinal disagreements with Christmas keeping, but those mostly came to prominence in later decades. The law banning the celebration of Christmas was passed to prevent the disorder and misrule of the Yuletide season. It was basically successful. As far as I could tell, the five-shilling fine was never levied against a Bostonian, and the mere existence of the statute was enough to prevent disorders. Back in Old England, things weren't so simple. The English Parliament passed versions of a Christmas ban in 1647 and again in 1652, perhaps inspiring the Massachusetts law that passed seven years later. On December 24, 1652, the Puritan-dominated so-called Rump Parliament resolved that no observation shall be had of the five-and-twentieth day of December, commonly called Christmas Day, nor any solemnity used or exercised in churches upon that day in respect thereof. In his article titled Christmas the Latecomer, Ivor Spencer quoted a 1657 diary entry to illustrate how, while Massachusetts may never have needed to enforce its Christmas ban, that wasn't the case in Old England. 25th December I went to London with my wife to celebrate Christmas Day. Mr. Gunning preaching in Exeter Chapel on Micah chapter 7 verse 2. Sermon ended, As he was giving us the Holy Sacrament, the chapel was surrounded with soldiers, and all the communicants and assemblies surprised and kept prisoners by them, some in the house, others carried away. I guess those fishermen and mariners on the fringes of Puritan society should have counted themselves lucky. The Governor Endicott never sent in the troops when they stayed home from work or had a bit too much to drink on Christmas Day. However, even in the old country where they did, Nissenbaum points out that their success wasn't as lasting as it was here. In England, the success of the Puritans was limited and temporary. Legislation banning the celebration of Christmas was contested in many places, even during the 1640s and 50s when Puritans controlled the government. There were riots in several towns. The policy was quickly reversed in 1660 upon the restoration of the English monarchy. But in New England, the Puritans did largely succeed in eliminating Christmas and many of the other practices of English popular culture. David D. Hall has succinctly described the transformed culture of what he aptly terms a new Protestant vernacular. Psalm singing replaced ballads. Ritual was reorganized around the celebration of the Sabbath and of fast days. No town in New England had a maypole. No group celebrated Christmas or St. Valentine's Day or staged a pre-Lenten carnival. On May 27, 1681, the 22-year Christmas ban was overturned at a general court of election, this time presided over by Governor Simon Bradstreet, but with most of the other members unchanged since 1659. After the other business of the day was concluded, the legislature considered and then passed eight changes to the province's laws suggested by the Attorney General and Solicitor. The last of the eight changes that were read, reviewed, and approved stated simply, the law against Christmas keeping to be left out. These eight changes, including leaving out the Christmas law, were among a number of legal changes demanded by King Charles II, who insisted that the stringent laws of Massachusetts were an affront to royal authority. In 1935, Spencer wrote, It is not to be denied that Massachusetts did finally withdraw the objectionable statute in 1681 but the step should be interpreted as representing merely formal obedience to the demands of the British government. 
In reality, the whole weight of Puritan custom continued to suppress any celebration of Christmas for the better part of 200 years. Now that Christmas keeping was technically legal, but still culturally unacceptable in Puritan Boston, the church and its adherents began fighting a long, ultimately unsuccessful rearguard action to make sure that Christmas never gained a beachhead in the religious practice of Boston's churches. With Nissenbaum writing, From the earliest years, Christmas reinserted itself in New England society. At first at its margins, but then, well before the end of the 17th century, and with a great upsurge in the middle of the 18th, and its very mainstream. By the beginning of the 19th century, an influential segment of the congregational ministry itself was prepared to call publicly for the formal, ceremonial observance of Christmas in the region's established churches. In 1684, Charles II vacated the Massachusetts Charter that his father Charles I had assented to in 1629, leading to a period of unprecedented uncertainty and instability. With the restoration of King Charles II and their charter vacated, the Boston Puritans lived in fear that the new government would impose what they considered the popish rituals of the Church of England, even in Boston. Eventually, King James II would institute the Dominion of New England, placing Boston under the direct control of a royal governor for the first time, and leading to the first official foothold for the Church of England in Boston. In the meantime, December of 1685 was a somber season. That year, Samuel Sewell was again grieving when the 25th rolled around. His infant son Henry had died days before, and the funeral was held on Christmas Eve. Thus, you can perhaps read a bit more venom than usual into his observation on December 25th, Friday. Carts come to town and shops open as is usual. Some somehow observe the day, but are vexed, I believe, that the body of the people profane it. And blessed be God, no authority yet to compel them to keep it. A great snow fell last night, so this day and night very cold. With the knowledge that the authority to compel Christmas keeping might arrive at any time, Increase Mather, one of the most influential Puritan ministers of the era, gave a sermon in 1685 titled, Testimony Against Several Profane and Superstitious Customs, Now Practiced by Some in New England. The four-part sermon included an argument against Christmas-keeping in seven sections. 1. In the pure apostolical times, there was no Christ-mass day observed in the Church of God. We ought to keep to the primitive pattern. 2. The word Christ-mass is enough to cause such as are studious of Reformation to dislike what shall be known by a name so superstitious. 3. It can never be proved that Christ's nativity was on the 25th of December. 4. Though the particular day of Christ's nativity is now unknown to the world, yet it seems most probable that he was born in the latter end of September, or in the beginning of October. 5. God, in his word, has nowhere appointed Christians to keep an anniversary holy day in commemoration of Christ's nativity. 6. Christmas holidays were at first invented and instituted in compliance with the pagan festivals of old, observed at that very time of year. Number 7. The generality of Christmas keepers observe that festival after such a manner as is highly dishonorable to the name of Christ. Each of the seven sections contained a lengthy argument from Scripture, but the last one is what the Puritans seemed most concerned about. How few are there comparatively that spend those holidays, holy days as they're called, after a holy manner? But they are consumed in computations, in interludes, in playing at cards, in revelings, 
in excess of wine, in mad mirth. Will Christ the Holy Son of God be pleased with such services? Just after this manner were the Saturnalia of the heathen celebrated. Saturn was the gaming god. And the feast of Christ's nativity is attended with such profaneness as that it deserves the name of Saturn's mass, or of Bacchus, his mass, or if you will, the devil's mass, rather than to have the holy name of Christ put upon it. Men dishonor Christ more in the twelve days of Christmas than in all the twelve months besides. And that is the way to honor Christ? The love feasts, though in themselves lawful, which began in the apostles' times, were wholly laid aside amongst Christians, because they had been an occasion of riotous abuses. There is much more reason to omit the observation of Christmas festivities, which have brought a deluge of profaneness upon the world. The scandal of them calls for their abolition. Mather concluded, I can remember the time when for many years, not so much as one of all these superstitious customs was known to be practiced in this land. By that, he meant not only Christmas keeping, but also the other profane customs he argued against. Gambling, drinking a toast to someone's health, cockfighting, and observing the saints' days. They are good nowhere, but in New England they are a thousand times worse than in another place. This has been Emmanuel's land. New England was and over ought to be a land of uprightness. But shall men do such things in a land of uprightness where the word of God and the ministers of God have taught them better? Is it no provocation to defile the Lord's land? To my knowledge, the first generation of Christians came into this wilderness with the hopes that their posterity here would never be corrupted with such vain customs. Ask such of the old standards as are yet living if it were not so. Methinks I hear the Lord speaking to New England as once to Israel. I planted thee a noble vine, wholly a right seed. How then art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine? It turns out that the degenerate plant that Increase Mather was familiar with couldn't hold a candle to the tendrils that took root in Boston the following year. Have I tortured that plant analogy enough? Last December, we revisited the arrival of Sir Edmund Andros in Boston in episode 165. As the personal representative of the king in New England, this new royal governor consolidated the governments of the New England colonies into a single Dominion of New England, and he ruled by personal fiat, completely sidelining the tradition of self-government that had been built in Massachusetts over a half-century of relative independence. These measures would go on to inspire an uprising, what some might consider a coup, in Boston in 1689. But even before the resentments leading to that uprising could fester, Governor Andros got off on the wrong foot from the very moment of his arrival in Boston. Samuel Sewell's diary records how Boston was introduced to their new governor. Monday, December 20th, 1686. Governor Andros comes up in the penance, touches at the castle, lands at Governor Leverett's Wharf about 2 p.m., where the president, etc., meet him, and so march up through the guards of the eight companies to the townhouse speaks to the ministers in the library about accommodation as to a meeting house that might so contrive the time as one house might serve two assemblies. The next day, the town's ministers met and debated how to handle the demand that they allow Andros access to one of their congregational churches in order to hold an Anglican service. The very notion was offensive, and after much reflection, Sewell writes, "'Twas agreed that could not with good conscience consent that our meeting-houses should be made use of for the common prayer worship." 
The minister at Third Church, what we know as Old South Meeting House, would later be more or less coerced into turning over the keys to the church and allowing an Anglican service to be held once a week. But before any of those details could be worked out, Governor Andros had urgent business. The Church of England had no grudge against Christmas keeping, and that's exactly what the governor planned to do. Sewell continues, Saturday, December 25th. Governor goes to the townhouse to service forenoon and afternoon, a red coat going on his right hand and Captain George on the left. Shops open today generally, and persons about their occasions. Some, but few, carts at the town with wood, though the day exceeding fair and pleasant. Notice that even though he noted the service held by Andros at what we now call the Old State House, he was also happy to point out that the shops were open and the trade in Boston streets was brisk. Even though it would be an uphill battle, because Increase Mather had just gotten done calling Christmas the Devil's Mass and saying that it dishonored Christ, Governor Andros intended to reinstitute Anglican customs, including Christmas. Stephen Nissenbaum wrote, Andros knew well the significance of subverting the Puritan Sabbath and reimposing the old seasonal calendar, Christmas very much included. Andros encouraged the residents of the colony to keep Christmas and other seasonal holidays. A few Bostonians celebrated Shrove Tuesday, meaning Mardi Gras, by dancing in the streets, and a maypole was erected in Charlestown. Now, the American Antiquarian Society was originally founded by Isaiah Thomas. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you may have heard our profile of Thomas way back in episode 26. He was a printer, a patriot, and the publisher of the Massachusetts Spy. When he fled Boston as war broke out in 1775, he ended up settling in Worcester. And that's where he used his fortune to set up the American Antiquarian Society. It's an amazing historical resource, and because of its founder's profession and interest, it focuses on print culture. That perhaps explains why the essay Stephen Nissenbaum produced in partnership with him focuses so much on printed materials, like sheet music, broadsheets, and almanacs. Before the Andros administration, no New England almanac had mentioned Christmas or the Saints' Days. However, the first almanac produced during his administration made it very clear to readers what the new official position was. But in his 1687 almanac, Tully boldly labeled December 25th in capital letters as Christmas Day, and he also added every one of the red-letter days recognized by the Church of England. December 21st thereby became St. Thomas. December 26th was St. Stephen, and December 27th was Innocence. In all likelihood, Tully used capital letters simply because his Boston printer did not have any red ink. The following year, Tully's almanac was published with the official imprint of Andros's deputy Edwin Randolph on the title page. It was a dramatic assertion of authority over the printed word. This offense lingered. And in 1706, long after the Glorious Revolution and after the expulsion of Andros, Samuel Sewell notes how he made some constructive edits to an almanac that was being prepared for printing in Boston. August 18th. Yesterday, the governor committed Mr. Holyak's almanac to me. And looking it over this morning, I blotted against February 14th, Valentine, March 25th, Annunciation of the Blessed Virgin, April 24th, Easter, September 29th, Michaelmas, December 25th, Christmas, and no more. King Charles' martyr was lined out before I saw it. I touched it not. 
Well, Governor Andrews brought the Anglican Church to Boston, founding King's Chapel, which would be the first church in Boston to hold regular Christmas ceremonies, and for years the only church to decorate for the season. His personal influence in Boston was relatively short-lived. After about two and a half years, he was ousted in an April 1689 coup. However, in his article on the rise of Christmas, Ivor Spencer pointed out that Anglicans weren't the only ones keeping Christmas in late 17th century Boston. A second religious denomination that observed the day was the French Huguenot Church, but this group was always very small in numbers in New England. It was represented by an organized church in Boston as early as 1687. Almost as if on cue, Samuel Sewell's diary reveals that he gave a neighbor a stern talking to just after Christmas 1698, after learning that the neighbor had kept Christmas with the Huguenots. This day, I speak with Mr. Newman about his partaking with the French church on the 25th of December, on account of its being Christmas Day, as they abusively call it. He stoutly defended the Holy Days and the Church of England. At least Mr. Newman was invited to the party. That year, Samuel Sewell got the cold shoulder, providing a preview of things to come in the new century. Writing a few days later about the conversations he had on Christmas Eve that year, he noted, It seems the lieutenant governor invites the council to dinner tomorrow at his house. That, of course, would be some of that heathen Christmas feasting that Increase Mather had recently described as a deluge of profaneness. Sewell continues, Mr. Cook asked me whether I was bidden. I told him I knew nothing of it. Major General looked upon me in good earnest, and almost angrily at going away, and told me I must go. But I heard nothing of it since, and tis now December 30th, past 3 p.m. Was Sewell waffling? saying that he would actually have attended a Christmas party if he had only been invited? It seems unlikely, as someone with as much wealth and influence as Samuel Sewell could probably show up to any party he wanted to. Nevertheless, he harbored a grudge over a perhaps imagined slight, continuing, The grievousness of this pretermission is that by this means I shall be taken up into the lips of the talkers, and shall be obnoxious to the governor at his coming, as a person deserted and fit to be hunted down, if occasion be and in the meantime shall go feebly up and down my business, as one who is quite out of the lieutenant governor's favor. The Lord pardon my share in the abounding of iniquity by reason whereof the love of many waxes cold. As the 17th century turned to the 18th, Samuel Sewell's empty social calendar wasn't the only sign that the Puritan church was relaxing its stranglehold on Boston's religious culture. Cotton Mather delivered a sermon in 1712 titled, Grace Defended, a censure on the ungodliness by which the glorious grace of God is too commonly abused. A sermon preached on the 25th day of December, 1712, containing some seasonable admonitions of piety. It's notable both for its condemnation of Christmas-keeping, consistent with his father Increase's sermons, and also for a surprisingly tolerant view of the growing number of people in Boston who made the choice to celebrate the holiday. He said, Tis an evident affront unto the grace of God for men to make the birth of our Holy Savior an encouragement and an occasion for very unholy enormities. Children, we lay the charges of God upon you, that if any people take this time for anything of a riotous tendency, you do not associate with them in such ungodliness. I do not now dispute whether people do well to observe such an uninstituted festival at all or no. 
Good men may love one another, and may treat one another with the most candid charity, while he that regardeth the day regardeth it unto the Lord. And he that regardeth not the day also shows his regard unto the Lord, and is not regarding of it. Can you in your conscience think that our holy Savior is honored by mad mirth, by long eating, by hard drinking, by lewd gaming, by rude reveling, by a mass fit for none but a Saturn or a Bacchus, or the night of a Mohammedan Ramadan? You cannot possibly think so. What a contradiction. He simultaneously denounced mirth-making on Christmas Day as unholy and ungodly, while also acknowledging that people who partook in such misrule to regard a day might be regarding it under the Lord. Nissenbaum's paper points out, Cotton Mather's father, Increase Mather, would have readily agreed with his son's angry warning about the bad things that went on at Christmas. But he never would have accepted Cotton Mather's willingness to accept the idea that it was possible for good Christians to differ in candid charity about observing the holiday at all. For Increase Mather, as for other 17th century Puritans, the licentious fashion in which Christmas was commonly practiced was just an intrinsic expression of its pre-Christian origin as a seasonal celebration. The holiday was riotous at its very core. For Cotton Mather, writing a generation later in the early 18th century, the essence of the holiday could be distinguished, at least in principle, from its historical origins and the ordinary manner of its celebration. Completely unsurprisingly, Samuel Sewell was one of the last holdouts, sticking to his insistence that Christmas be ignored for years after the wider Puritan culture was relaxing its position. This is illustrated by the stand he took in the year 1722. That year, Governor Shute proposed adjourning the legislature for a Christmas break, something that would have never flown in the days when Governor Endicott supported a formal ban on Christmas. However, before he asked the body to vote, he first tried to win over the old stick-in-the-mud, Sewell. Sewell's diary records the drama that started with his first exchange with the governor on the topic on December 19th. His Excellency took me aside to the southeast window of the council chamber to speak with me about adjourning the general court to Monday next because of Christmas. I told His Excellency I would consider it. December 20th. I invited Dr. Mather to dine with me, not knowing that he preached. After dinner, I consulted with him about the adjournment of the court. We agreed that it would be expedient to take a vote of the council and representatives for it. Friday, December 21st. The governor took me to the window again, looking eastward, next to Mrs. Phillips's, and spake to me again about adjourning the court to next Wednesday. I spake against it, and propounded that the governor would take a vote for it that he would hold the balance even between the church and us. His Excellency went to the board again and said much for this adjourning. All kept Christmas but we. I suggested King James I to Mr. Dudley, how he boasted what a pure church he had, and they did not keep Yule. Mr. Dudley asked if the Scots, meaning the Presbyterians, kept Christmas. His Excellency protested he believed they did not. The governor said they adjourned for the commencement in artillery. But then, tis by agreement. Colonel Taylor spoke so loud and boisterously for adjourning that twas hard for any to put in a word. Colonel Townsend seconded me and Colonel Partridge, because this would prolong the sessions. Mr. Davenport stood up and gave it as his opinion that twould not be convenient for the governor to be present in court that day, and therefore was for adjourning. But the governor is often absent and yet the council and representatives go on. 
Now the governor has told us that he would go away for a week, and then return, and if he liked what we had done, he would consent to it. The governor mentioned how it would appear to have votes passed on December 25th. But His Excellency need not have been present nor sign any bill that day. I said, the dissenters came a great way for their liberties, and now the church had theirs, yet they could not be contented, except they might tread all others down. After three days of heated debate, Mr. Sewell lost. Saturday, December 22nd. About a quarter of an hour before 12, the governor adjourned the court to Wednesday morning, 10 o'clock, and sent Mr. Secretary into the House deputies to do it there. The legislature may not have met on Christmas Day, but that didn't mean that commerce didn't go on. And, of course, Samuel Sewell was watching like a hawk. Tuesday, December 25th. I chose to stay home and not go to Roxbury Lecture. The shops were open, and carts came to town with wood, hoop poles, and hay, as at other times. Being a pleasant day, the street was filled with carts and horses. There's no entry in Sewell's diary for the next Christmas, but in 1724 and 1725, the governor simply adjourned the court without debate. 1724, December 24th. Court is prorogued to the 20th of January, just about 11 o'clock. December 25th. Shops are open, carts, sleds, horses come to town as aforetimes. And 1725. Friday, December 24th. The lieutenant governor adjourns the general court to Tuesday, December 28th. December 25th. The shops are open, and much timber, fuel, hay, etc. brought to town. By the second decade of the 1800s, strict Puritanism was on the decline, and celebrating Christmas was on the rise. Spencer's article illustrates how these trends continued as the 18th century wore on. For the first 100 years, the admonitions of men like Mather were listened to, it would seem, and the force of New England Puritanism remained strong, causing Christmas to be looked upon as a sacrilegious, yet semi-pagan ceremony, a breeder of drunkenness and disorder. As the 18th century wore on, however, the strength of that way of life began to ebb, and the festival made some friends outside the Episcopal Church. Take the instances in the life of the Reverend Manasseh Cutler, one of the shrewdest men who ever drove a hard bargain with the American Congress. In 1765, he attended an Anglican Christmas service at King's Chapel, and eight years later, he himself preached a Christmas sermon from his congregational pulpit at Ipswich. A century after Boston's ban on Christmas expired, the ancient tradition of mummery returned, with rowdy wassailing carried out by groups known as the Boston Antics. Bostonian Samuel Breck wrote about him in his memoirs, saying he remembered them coming to his father's house as late as 1782. They were a set of the lowest blackguards who, disguised in filthy clothes and oft-times with masked faces, went from house to house in large companies and, like it or not, obtruding themselves everywhere, particularly into the rooms that were occupied by parties of ladies and gentlemen, would demean themselves with great insolence. I have seen them at my father's, when his assembled friends were at cards, take possession of a table, seat themselves on rich furniture, and proceed to handle the cards, to the great annoyance of the company. The only way to get rid of them was to give them money and listen patiently to a foolish dialogue between two or more of them. One of them would cry out, Ladies and gentlemen, sitting by the fire, put your hands in your pockets and give us our desire. When this was done and they had received some money, a kind of acting took place. 
One fellow was knocked down and lay sprawling on the carpet, while another bellowed out, See, there he lies, but ere he dies, a doctor must be had. He calls for a doctor who soon appears and enacts the part so well that the wounded man revives. In this way they would continue for a half an hour, and it happened not unfrequently that the house would be filled by another gang when these had departed. There was no refusing admittance. Custom had licensed these vagabonds to enter even by force any place they chose. As the 18th century turned to the 19th, public Christmas celebrations slowly became the norm. The remnants of the Puritan church were further weakened, as a schism divided the churches we now know as Congregational from Unitarian, diverse Protestant denominations flourished, and the first major wave of Irish immigration brought a newly reinvigorated Catholic church and its Christmas customs. Starting in the 1840s, a few businesses closed on Christmas Day, and in the late 1840s, newspapers stopped delivering on the day. Ivor Spencer noted the rise of another familiar Christmas custom around the same time. The trade in gifts increased very rapidly to the great joy of shopkeepers. It was in the 1840s, if the advertisements are a sound guide, that presents became not the exception, but the rule. At the start of the decade, comparatively few notices were to be found in any one paper. By 1850, on the other hand, a Boston editor was whimsically telling his readers that one might almost as well attempt to number the sands on the seashore as to enumerate the various articles used as gifts. Soon, states started making December 25th an official holiday, and as Spencer wrote, Massachusetts joined their ranks in 1856, but did not content itself with respite merely from financial business. The legislators provided also that the general court should not sit except for the transaction of extraordinary matters, that no trials should be held by the judiciary, and that all public offices should be closed. I'm sure Samuel Sewell turned over in his grave. That same year, old H.W. Longfellow marked the holiday with a melancholy entry in his diary. 25th. Not a very merry Christmas. We are in a transition state about Christmas here in New England. The old Puritan feeling prevents it from being a cheerful, hearty holiday, though every year makes it more so. Spencer's article continues, Although by 1860, or soon afterwards, the laymen of the more Protestant churches had given up the austere opinions of their forefathers and had accorded Christmas a hearty welcome, their ministers did not give it so warm a reception. Only the passing of years induced the latter to forget the increasingly unpopular doctrines of their imposing and pious predecessors. Even in the year Spencer's essay was published, there were some official acknowledgments of Congregationalism's austere Puritan past. In 1935, the obviously closed doors of the older New England churches on Christmas morning act as a reminder of the old puritanical prohibitions, but in every other regard the old taboos have been forgotten. No longer does Santa Claus suggest the devil. No more are presents looked upon with suspicion. No clergyman denounce reckless mirth and impious feasting. Vanished is the Lord of Misrule. Now the stately windows of Boston blaze with candles on Christmas Eve, and strolling singers chant the carols of the Middle Ages up and down the streets of Beacon Hill. Today, of course, keeping Christmas is by far the dominant custom in Boston and beyond. But it's a largely secular, entirely commercialized Christmas that neither the Puritans nor their Anglican antagonists would recognize.
I find myself as a non-Christian in the odd position of both not celebrating Christmas, but also not approving of the way that most people do celebrate it. After decades of reflection, I can't see a reason to observe Christmas if not to celebrate the birth of a Savior. However, like Governor Bradford of Plymouth, I think that if you want to celebrate Christmas, it should be a matter of devotion. It should be a day of quiet prayer and reflection, without reveling in the streets. Like Cotton Mather, I find myself wondering how the Christian Messiah is honored by mad mirth and rude reveling. As someone standing on the outside and looking in, it doesn't seem like the performative acts of charity carried out during the season honor the one who commanded, When thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have the glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret, and thy father, which seeth in secret himself, shall reward thee openly. Likewise, it doesn't seem possible that spending huge sums of money in the Christmas shopping season is the right way to honor a guy who drove the money changers out of the temple. And giving or receiving elaborate gifts and acquiring more possessions is hardly in keeping with the advice he gave a rich man who asked how to get to heaven. If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell all that thou hast, and give it unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. Then, come and follow me. To learn more about Christmas in early Boston, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 212. I'll have links to the articles by Ivor Spencer and Stephen Nissenbaum that I quoted from so extensively, as well as Nissenbaum's book, The Battle for Christmas. I'll link to the anti-Christmas sermons of Increase and Cotton Mather, the text of the 1659 Christmas ban and its 1681 repeal, and Thomas Prince's New England chronology. I'll also include the diaries of Samuel Breck, William Bradford, and of course Samuel Sewell, my favorite Puritan. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. If you do, drop us a line. I'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. That's all for now. Stay safe out there, listeners. And don't travel for Christmas this year. <laughs>